All right, good morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can raise your hand. If you want to follow along with us, and, and one of our men will get one to you. We always want to encourage everyone to follow along in the Scriptures with us. Uh, it's a privilege to be able to read the Scriptures for yourself. Uh, this is something that uh, greatly changed the time of the Reformation. That was what the Reformation was all about in the Christian church. History, the history of the church was changed by one man saying, people should be reading this for themselves and not being told what it says. And that changed uh, church history for all time. And we thank, uh, uh, we thank those men that went before us who, who pioneered uh, the, the translation of scriptures, the, the uh, creation of uh, the printing of Bibles so that it could be accessible to as many people as possible. And so we certainly want to take advantage of that privilege this morning. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm using the same Bible as uh, the ones that the church has. And so if you have one of those Bibles, you can just turn to page 960 with me. And where it says Matthew chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be this morning. And there are crayons and coloring pages back there for the children. Um, but if you're an adult, and that's something that will be a great help to you, <laughs> help yourself, okay? Don't feel ashamed. There are some more difficult coloring pages back there that might be challenging to you, so we'll see. Let's read our passage this morning, and then we'll pray for God's blessing over it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1. We're going to read 1 through 11, but we're only going to cover half of this this morning. All right, starting at verse 1, chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we long to be blessed by you. To be blessed by you is the highest form of blessing that anyone could ever ask for, anything that anyone could ever attain. And we just pray for your forgiveness for all the times that we, we seek the blessing of lesser sources of divine uh, of power. We, we seek the blessings of um, parents or teachers or, or bosses or or. Any, any created human being just like us, we, sometimes we seek the blessings that have no comparison to what it means to be blessed by the one true God. So we just pray for your help. We ask for your help now to understand what it means to seek an eternal blessing from the one true God, the God that we worship as Christians. 
the God that we have access to through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, that we could turn to you whenever we need you. We could pray to you whenever we need you. So, Father, we ask for your blessing this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This section of scripture is called the Beatitudes, and it, and it takes place early on in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And it's an interesting place where Jesus turns around and is now teaching those who are following him because he's now having a crowd that's intrigued by him. Because if you read the section of Matthew just before this, and if you study the, the Gospel of John as well and the other Gospels uh, that talk about what's taking place in this early part of Jesus' ministry, he's turning water into wine, he's uh, he's healing people, he's teaching in the synagogues, and now he, in, in chapter 4, end of chapter 4, uh, we see here that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And so now that they're intrigued with Jesus, he's taking this opportunity, uh, which it appears to me that he's taking this opportunity to now turn around and teach them what it truly means to follow him instead of just being intrigued by him. I think many times uh, people want to stop in their faith in God when, when great things happen in their lives, when they get land a job that they are hoping for, or they come upon a, a certain amount of money they're praying about, or they're healed of a certain disease or, or a certain kind of suffering, or a relationship might be healed. And a lot of people tend to stop there because they just experienced a blessing from God, but their faith doesn't ever surpass that blessing. I think it's interesting that Jesus is turning around to teach people here because uh, we see time and time again when Jesus healed some people or he helped some people, he made it clear to them that it's not the physical healing that heals them spiritually. It's not the physical healing that heals them spiritually. It's the understanding of who God is and what it means to be faithful to God and what it means to love God. That is what Jesus wants to point everyone to. The fact that someone might be healed doesn't mean that they're necessarily saved from their sins. And so now that Jesus has their attention, that they've been physically healed, or they've heard his teachings, uh, and they've seen, they've uh, witnessed miracles happening, it's like he's taking this opportunity now to say, here's the deeper understanding of what it means to follow me. So as Christians, we have this challenge that, to make sure that we're not just enthralled with the, the temporary blessings that God gives us by his grace in our life here, but that we have a true understanding and a better understanding of what it means to truly love God, as that is the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is this entire sermon in chapters 5 through 7, I encourage you, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, read it through, uh, it's just two chapters, read it through in one sitting. Uh, try to ignore the best you can the verse numbers and the chapter numbers and the little uh, uh, paragraph headings that they, where they, they try to help you out in the, in the Bible of, of kind of giving you a clue of what this next section is about. Uh, try to ignore all those things and just read straight through the Sermon on the Mount as if it was one sermon, because it was. And, and try to ask yourself, what do you think the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is? Uh, it's so easy when we have verses, verse numbers and chapter numbers to only read small sections of Scripture at a time. And that has its benefit. Uh, but we have to remember that Scripture is written in a context. And we need to study Scripture in its context. And sometimes the numbers that they have down there could be an actual hindrance to people studying the Bible. Because they only read one verse at a time. 
and they might think it means something else until they read the next verse, <laughs> and it reveals uh, what, the, what it really is saying. So that's just an encouragement to you guys there. But here we have the Beatitudes, and it's called the Beatitudes because the word for blessed is the, the Latin word beatitudo, and to, to be blessed, in other words, to mean to be happy. But it's not just the kind of happiness that we tend to seek out, uh, such as temporary happiness, but it's more like this eternal happiness. Uh, to be blessed by God, which is an eternal blessing. And there's a reality that we have to remember here, that to be blessed by God uh, means that there's reality of the opposite that is true as well. If, if someone is not blessed by God, then they are in fact cursed by God. That when we, when we read scriptures about uh, how the vengeance is the Lord's and the Lord's alone, it's not that we don't take those passages to mean God is going to smite all of those people who brought pain in our lives and he's going he's to make sure to mow down all of our enemies and all the people we don't like. That's how people tend to use those verses. What it's really talked about is the vengeance for the Lord is his and that he and he alone is responsible for punishing the wicked. And so as human beings, as we are wicked, but we are saved by God's grace, as Christians, we place our faith in Christ alone because we are sinful and we are wicked and we, there's nothing good in us but Christ, we should be able to empathize for others who are in a place where we used to be. So it's not our job to condemn other people. It's not our job to say to people that they, uh, uh, they're going to hell because of this and this and this sin. Uh, it is our job to present the gospel and warn them about the dangers of hell and God's just punishment. But we're also there to bring the gospel and the good news that there is salvation offered to them just as it was offered to us. So it's not our job to condemn people. So when we talk about being blessed by God, we have to understand that the reality of the opposite is just as true. That if we're not blessed by God, then the fear is that we are going to be cursed by God. That we will undergo God's just punishment. To be blessed by to not be blessed by God isn't some sort of uh, alternative to life where, well, it would be great to be blessed by God, but I'm doing pretty well without God's blessing. That's not the alternative. The alternative is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The, the alternative is eternal punishment in the life to come. So we, we must not forget that to not be blessed by God is just ignoring something even better than what we have. No, there, there's, it's the best that we could have, and if by not being blessed by God, we're gonna, those people are going to undergo extreme, extreme torment. And that's the reality of being blessed and being cursed. So being blessed by God, the, the Jews would have had this understanding. Who would not want to be blessed by God? And the nation of Israel, they were constantly seeking God's blessing. And in the, in the Old Testament law, is always about if you, God told them, if you do these things, you will remain in the land. You will continue to be blessed by me. You will multiply fruitfully. You will, your crops will continue to multiply. Your crops will always give, uh, give fruit. Your, uh, I will bring rain in its, in its seasons when it's supposed to rain. So God, over time, always reminded them, live under my blessing, and it all had to do with their obedience to him. So the Jews had this understanding that there is no higher uh, blessing than to be blessed by God. So now Jesus is turning, he's saying, blessed are those. Uh, if we look at the Beatitudes, they all have the same structure. It's blessed are those, and then for they will 
And, and the structure is like this. It's uh, blessed. It's a status. They are blessed. And then we have are those. It's a description of those who are blessed. So we have a status and a description and then the eternal blessing that's coming after that. For they, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they shall be comforted. For they shall inherit the earth. And what we're going to find in these next two weeks as we go through the Beatitudes is that all eight Beatitudes, they're not, they're not different blessings. They're not eight different kinds of blessings that God gives us. They're all description of the same blessing, which is eternal life. It's the same blessing, all described in different ways. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they will be comforted. For they will, will inherit all things. They will be filled with righteousness. They will be shown mercy. They will, be, they will see God. They will be called sons of God. And, and then it ends with the, other, with the first one, they, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are all eight different ways of describing the same eternal blessing that as today as Christians we enjoy uh, the, 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 our hope is in, is our hope is in eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let's get into this. Uh, one of the dangers is many times the Beatitudes could be interpreted in a way where there are different, uh, different ways of being blessed by God in earthly ways. But we want to keep in mind that these are all eternal. This is all about the one eternal blessing of being with God forever, to be able to see God. The Israelites wouldn't have even fathomed this idea of being able to see God. Isaiah crumbled before, before his vision of God, thinking that he is unclean. He, is a, uh, he has a man of unclean lips. And so when people uh, came in contact with angels, they would say, you know, the first thing angels might say is, fear not. Why would they be afraid? Because they had an understanding that if they were going to see God, they would drop dead. And so the good news that angels brought many times was fear not. You're not going to drop dead, right? Uh, we saw in Genesis when, when Jacob wrestled with God. And later on, he saw his brother Esau, and he thought Esau was going to kill him. And, and turned out Esau came and hugged him instead. He, he, he said to Esau, I see your face as one who sees the face of God and lives. Why? Because he just experienced that exact thing. Jacob had just come face to face with God, and he had an understanding that there was no way he should be alive right now. So as we see, as we read these eternal blessings, keep in mind it's about the same blessing, which is eternal life with God, to be with God forever. Let's go to the first one. So Jesus turns and teaches them. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit are blessed by God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the question is immediately, well, what does that mean to be poor in spirit? In the Old Testament, you know, the Israelites would have understood what it means to be poor in spirit. Uh, they would have had examples like Isaiah 57, where, where he writes, uh, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is Holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with a contrite and lowly of spirit, the poor of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So who does God dwell with? He says, I dwell on high, on a high and a holy place, and also with the poor in spirit. What it means to be poor in spirit is to admit your spiritual bankruptcy before God. To admit that you have nothing good to offer God out in in and of yourself, 
that it's only by God's goodness, and now as Christians today, it's the righteousness of Christ that is placed on us and Christ who lives in us. That is the only good that we can offer God. It's Christ that makes it possible for us to do anything pleasing to God. And so God, in, in Hebrews it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith in what? Well, faith in Christ. When Jesus said that I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing, what he's talking about there is that it is impossible, it's impossible to please God apart from Christ. And so uh, another way to read these is that they are symptoms of a changed heart. If you're in here and, you, and your faith is in Jesus Christ for your salvation, all the Beatitudes describe you on some level. We're going to see that in order to even to become a, uh, be a Christian, you have to have a basic understanding of all eight of these things. I would argue that all eight of these things, eight of these Beatitudes, are, are simultaneous changes that occur in a believer's heart when they are regenerated, when God changes their heart. The moment they place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, the moment they come to an understanding of their need for salvation and their, and their need for Christ and his death and resurrection for their forgiveness, the moment that happens, their heart undergoes regeneration. They are what we call born again, as, John, as, uh, God, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So as soon as a person is born again, they will have a basic understanding of all eight of these Beatitudes because what's the eternal blessing again? It's eternal life. In order for someone to even become a Christian, they have to first admit their need for God. They have to admit that they are spiritually bankrupt without God's goodness and God's help for them. The whole vision of uh, Abraham uh, when, he, when he saw the vision of the, of the pot and the torch, uh, of the boiling pot and the torch going through the animal pieces. Uh, you can look this up yourself um, and read it more in depth, but we call it the blood path. And, and the significance of this vision was that Abraham never had to pass through these animal pieces. And the significance of that was that normally when people made this covenant, it was between two people. And they'll go hand in hand or holding other places on their body to show how serious they were. And they'll go between these animal pieces, and they were making this commitment saying, if I don't keep my end of this bargain, may, may what's done to these animals that were cut in half or bleeding out right now, may that be done to me if I break my promise. See, God passed through those animal pieces twice. One of those times was for Abraham. And the promise that, that God, the covenant God was making for Abraham and all his descendants. What was he saying? He was saying that he knows that Abraham and all his descendants have no chance of keeping their end of the covenant. And so God is going to take the punishment upon himself for them. Little did they know that was going to be Christ on the cross, crucified for our sins and resurrected three days later. They, had no, they wouldn't have had any understanding of the, of the revelation that was going to take place in the life of Jesus. But somehow they would have had some understanding that God was taking the responsibility of the covenant upon himself. And they would have taken great comfort in that. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 11. It says this. It says, beware that you do not forget. This is God speaking to them, to the nation of Israel. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. 
Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's warning them that there will come a time when they will forget just how bankrupt they are without God's help. That God will bless them so abundantly and so much in their life that they will uh, forget that it was God who gave it to them in the first place. And they will start to think that, well, who needs God anymore? Let's worship these other idols. Let's worship these other gods to help us have more children and these other fertility gods. And let's sacrifice our children to these other gods like Molech and everything to get their blessings. Why? Because they forgot the, the Lord their God. They were not poor in spirit. Every Christian has, has to have a basic understanding of this because you can't come to Christ without admitting that you utterly need God's help for you to have eternal life. And these are all things that Christians will grow into over time as we are sanctified by the Spirit. Well, no one's perfect at being poor in spirit. No one's going to be perfect at mourning over their sins, as we're going to see in the next one. No one's perfect in any of these beatitudes. So don't get this idea that if we can be, if we're really good in this beatitude, then we're going to somehow please God. No, the whole point is the same point as why God gave us the law. He gave us the law to show us that we can't keep it. And Jesus is giving us this beatitude to show us what it truly means to love the Lord. And as we continually fail in all of these, but yet we continue to grow, it's Christ that we rely upon to get us through all those failings, to get us through all the growth that we need, as, as eventually we look forward to the day that we are glorified and made in the image of his Son. So throughout our whole lifetime, we're going to be growing in all of these beatitudes. So, so keep that in mind. Remain poor in spirit. Uh, as you grow in being poor in spirit, which kind of sounds like an oxymoron, uh, keep in mind that it is God that gives us the ability to do any of these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there is no room for human pride in the kingdom of heaven. If the idea and the thought of worshiping God for eternity and your whole life being consumed with worshiping God for eternity, if that sounds at all uh, 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 boring to you, then you might not understand what it means to be poor in spirit. Because the kingdom of heaven is also known as the kingdom of who? God. It's the kingdom of God. So as we grow in being poor in spirit, we're actually preparing ourselves for eternity. We're preparing ourselves for the reality that we're going to be worshiping God and God alone for eternity after this life. That there will be no more temptation to worship ourselves. There will be no more temptation to do things our own way. No more temptation to worship uh, or, or to look after, uh, uh, look to other things in this world for comfort and peace and, and all these other good things. There will be no more temptation of that. There will only be God to worship, and those who love him are not going to have any problem with that. But we can't do this perfectly here in this life on earth. There's going to be times when we're going to struggle with that. The blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom 
of heaven. Why? Because they have an understanding that the kingdom of heaven is not about them. And when you're poor in spirit, you have an understanding that is not about you. So what are some areas that Christians can still be rich in spirit? There are some ways that we still fail at this. Well, my, my question to you would be, well, what areas of pride do you still struggle with? Uh, our culture tells us to take pride in our work, uh, to take pride in our children, to take pride in our families, take pride in our country, uh, take pride in the high school we go to, take pride in our football teams, take pride in our hometown. We, we're told to take pride in so many things. And what does Paul write in Corinthians? If we were to boast, we boast in the Lord. So we're told in this culture, it's good to take pride. Take pride in your work, in your hard work, all those things. Well, I would rephrase that. Instead of taking pride in our hard work, we should be thanking God for the fact that we can work hard. That is not upon our own striving, not upon our own strength that we could do those things. By God's grace, uh, we haven't undergone some sort of horrific injury that has kept us from working, right? Because what happens for those who have gone under, undergone some tragedy that has prevented them from working? They would feel tremendous guilt. Why? Because everyone else is taking pride in their hard work. But if we remember that everything is by God's grace, it allows us to also minister to those who are struggling, who maybe aren't given the same opportunities that we have been given by God's grace. And the more pride that we take upon ourselves and, and things that we can do, well, the harder it is for you, the harder it is going to be for us to actually empathize with those who are struggling. What if we have a brother or sister in Christ who are struggling with some of the trials going on in their life, and, and here we are taking pride in how hard we work and all the things that we're taking pride in, in our paychecks, taking pride in all these things. How are we possibly going to minister to those who God has directed in a, in a different direction and they're still under the same God's grace as we are so we have to be careful about what we take pride in if we're going to boast we boast in the Lord uh, it's hard to uh, look in the mirror at ourselves sometimes and see what areas we're prideful in I think it might be easy to say well I think I'm doing pretty good in all these areas uh, I'll pose a few more questions that hopefully help us dive a little deeper in self-introspection what is an area of pride? I think uh, uh, pride is taking credit for only what God can do. And, and so maybe an area of pride might be uh, ask yourself, what area in your life would it hurt the most to not receive the recognition that you think you deserve? Right? What area in your life do you think it would hurt the most if you were to not receive the recognition from others that you think you deserve? Right? Or where in your life are you placing your self-worth? You know, you, you are a Christian, you've placed your faith in Christ, you know that you need God, you know that you need Christ and, his, and his, his atonement for your sins. But maybe there's still an area in your life where you're still struggling with placing your self-worth in that area. Maybe it's in your job, maybe it's in your role as a husband or a father, um, whatever it might be. But that might be a question that could help you decide what are the areas of pride that are still in your life. Where are you placing your self-worth? Your bank account, your position, status, physical appearance, your possessions, the things that you have, if you have more than your next-door neighbor, 
and that makes you feel like you're you're more blessed by God or you're somehow you're pleasing God more because you have more stuff. Uh, there are so many areas where we could ask ourselves this question: Is where are we placing our self worth? That's outside of Christ. Uh, there's times when we, when people say that we don't need God's help. Uh, if you talk, if you have conversations with unbelievers in your life, and, and you talk about your need for God, they might say something like, "Well, well, religion's good for those who need it, right? Or I just don't need that crutch, right? I think I think Christianity is good for those who need that crutch. That's just not me." And, and you might have had those conversations. I know I, I have plenty of those conversations with unbelievers. Anyway, if someone is accusing you of using Christ or your faith as a crutch, then praise God. It means you're doing something right. If, if your life is being lived visibly enough to where someone sees that you rely upon God in your life, then praise God. It means that you're doing something right. And so don't be offended if someone says to you, oh, you're just using it as a crutch. Well, yeah, you should say amen to that. It's not, he's not our crutch. He's our life. So it's like being a, a, it's like we're being cat, we're catatonic without him. He's so much more than a crutch to the Christian. He is the life to the Christian. So don't be offended if someone says to you, "Oh, your faith is just a crutch for you." Yeah, be 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 joyful about that. And then you explain to him how how he is so much more than just a crutch. That you don't have any legs to stand on without Christ. And that will get the message across that much more clearly. Uh, in Judges chapter 7, God, God makes it clear time and time again in the Old Testament when they go into battle that he wants to make it very clear that it is not their own power that saves them. And so there's a famous story in Judges chapter 7 where, where Gideon has 32,000 soldiers to go in. And God says, you have too many people because if you conquered uh, this city with 32,000 men, they would think that they did it. On, upon their own strength. So what does he do? It, the story is famously called Gideon's 300. Why? Because God dwindles down his army to 300 people, and they're vastly outnumbered. And then not only do they uh, are, are down to 300 people, but God doesn't even let them fight in the beginning. He, he, make, he lets them make a bunch of noise to confuse the enemies, and the enemies kill each other. And, and so God, over time, time and time again, makes it very clear he never once lets Israel conquer, uh, win battles upon their own strength to make it very clear that they are to be poor in spirit because it's not about their own strength. It's about the strength of God that assists them. That is their livelihood. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. We are admitting to God that we are utterly bankrupt without his help, that we need God's help to get into heaven, that we can't we can't just be really good and God will let us into heaven while these other really bad people will. Yeah, they clearly need forgiveness, but me, I'm pretty good, and so I don't need the blood of Christ to forgive my sins. No, God erases all those arguments because it's only the poor in spirit who receive the kingdom of heaven. Next is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, mourn uh, is is what exactly what it sounds like. This idea of being sad and grieving over something, but uh, a lot of times this passage is misused in, in like in funerals and, and memorial services, or when we're comforting people who are going through a, gr- a grievous time. And we might quote this saying, "Well, bl- the Bible says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted.'" Well, it's a nice sentiment, 
But there are better passages to use when you're, when you're comforting someone who's grieving. Uh, passages like in Ephesians to, to, that we, sh- we should speak words that edify one another. Or w- in Hebrews, it says that we should encourage one another. Or in Romans 12, it says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. This has so much of a deeper meaning because I'm sure you have met people who have mourned and they didn't receive comfort in this life. I'm sure we've all had, we've been in places where we've mourned over things and we didn't receive the comfort that we thought we would receive. And so this passage is not to be used in in the day-to-day kind of mourning, but this mourning talks about, well, why do we need God? Why do we need to be poor in spirit? Because of our sinfulness. And when we, uh, when we are able to admit to God that we are bankrupt without his help, it is because we recognize that we are utterly sinful. So what are we to mourn over? We are to mourn over our sin. It is impossible to receive the comfort of God's forgiveness without actually feeling sorry for your sin. There is a brokenness that every believer undergoes the moment of their salvation. You can't possibly receive forgiveness for your sins without actually having an understanding of just how sinful you are. And and so once again, all the Beatitudes, every Christian has a basic understanding of every one of these Beatitudes. Why? Because their heart was changed by it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, In Luke, when Jesus teaches, in Luke's recording, the Gospel of Luke uh, recording of the Beatitudes, it says, those who laugh now will weep. What does that mean? Well, those who are laughing as if they're getting away with doing what they want to do, ultimately they will be in a place of what Jesus calls a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The people could laugh all they want in God's face now because God is withholding his wrath, but upon the day of their judgment, that wrath will come full force on them and they will weep. And there will be no more laughing for them. There will be no more rejoicing that they're getting away with doing their own thing. But God's judgment is going to be just. That is why those who mourn are promised comfort. Those who mourn over their sins, those who have an understanding of just how sinful they are, and there is no help for them outside of Jesus Christ and his atoning death and and, 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 uh, resurrection for that forgiveness, Without that, we are lost. Our comfort comes through the fact that we know that Christ is enough. That when we mess up again and again in our life, when we praise God that Christ is enough, we praise him because we know that Christ died for all sins for all time. So when you sin after church today, or when you sin when you get home, or, and you're not trying to, but you, in your sinful nature, you're still going to sin in this body and in this life, you could rest assured that you'll be comforted by God's forgiveness in the end. You are promised the comfort of God. When you have mourned over your sin, it's because you have an understanding that you needed Christ and his help for you to be forgiven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That is a promise. And that is, once again, an eternal blessing that will be in a place of eternal comfort when we are in heaven with God. Blessed are those who mourn, or they will be comforted. You know, it, uh, when we have faith in God, uh, a lot of times people will say they have faith in God and they might be struggling in their faith. I, I would venture to say, and I propose this idea that, that when people struggle in their faith, 
it's usually because they, they struggle in their faith because their faith is in God for the day-to-day things in their life. That they, they place their faith in God so that they might get this job. Or they place their faith in God so they might be healed. They place their faith in God so that they might meet that special someone in their life. They place their faith in God so that they might uh, become this when they grow up or, or when they, when they uh, get their profession. They place their faith in God for all these other things that are temporary. But what it means to place our faith in God as Christians is that ultimately, no matter what happens, we know that we will be saved from this life. So when we struggle in our faith and we say things like, well, my, my faith is struggling today because I thought this was going to happen for me, but it's not happened yet. Well, it's because we're being distracted by what our faith in God is really for. Our faith in God is not for us to be saved on a day-to-day basis from all the discomforts in life. Our faith is in God is to be saved from the eternal discomfort that is awaiting for those who do not love the Lord. So I, I, I just I pose that thought for you guys to ponder is if you if you feel like you're struggling with does God love me or is God is God, does God even see what I'm going through right now or is God with me in all this in all these struggles? I, I want to pose the thought that maybe you're being distracted from what you are really supposed to put your faith in God for. That the promises of God is for our eternal life, our eternal comfort, for the kingdom of heaven that is everlasting, is not to save us from every discomfort that's in this life. And so if you're questioning God's love for you, and you know that you're a Christian, and you know that you placed your faith in in Christ, and and you know that you have eternal life, but maybe you're questioning how much does God love you right now, I challenge you to look back to the cross as the cross is given to us as the sole sign for us to, uh, to see how much God loves us. There's nothing else in this life. We're not to look at our bank accounts, not to look at our physical health, not to look at anything else to see how much God loves us. We're to look back to the cross and what was accomplished on that cross for us. That's the sign of God's love for us, not in the day-to-day mundane things. So I just want to encourage you in that. That when we mourn of our sins, we receive eternal comfort because we know that we have been forgiven of all our sins, that Christ is enough. The next is, blessed are the gentle, or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And, and so, once again, going in order of these things, you, you admit your need for God, you're, you're spiritually poor, and then you are mourning over your sinful state. Well, the next Step to that, naturally, is, well, now you're going to be gentle and meek. What does that mean? You're going to entrust yourself to God's ways. Who were the meek in the Old Testament? The meek and the gentle in the Old Testament were those who submitted to do things God's way and not anyone else's, not their own ways. Uh, Psalm 37 uh, talks very clearly about what it means to be meek. It says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret or worry. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity." Now, those promises were the nation of Israel as they understood it because they, their whole lives were about being in the promised land. 
So when we read about prosperity in the Old Testament, it all had to do specifically with the Israelites being promised the promised land and being prosperous in that land. And now we have a fuller, as Christians today, we have a fuller revelation of what it means to be prosperous. It's not necessarily in this life. It's the land and the kingdom that we'll be inheriting in eternal life. That is our prosperity. That is our treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. So who are the meek in the Old Testament? It's those who chose to do things God's way and not their own. Uh, there's a classic example of this in, uh, in the Old Testament of Abraham and, and uh, Sarah. They were promised a child who, was, who eventually was Isaac, and their son Isaac. Well, they waited a long time, and Sarah was already well past childbearing years, and, and they waited so long, and eventually they came up with their own plan to have a child, which was for Abraham to have sex with Hagar instead, their maid, and have a child through that through Hagar, because it wasn't happening between Abraham and Sarah. Well, guess what? It worked. And they thought that this was it. This was the child that God had promised them. Well, they named that son Ishmael, and uh, about when Ishmael was a teenager, God came to Abraham again and said, Abraham, I'm going to promise you a son this next year. And guess what? At this point, Abraham's 100 years old, and Sarah is about 90 years old. And so they both laugh. They laugh. And, and uh, Sarah even laughed on the inside, and God caught, caught her. So, uh, she said, I didn't laugh. She said, yes, you did. Uh, but they thought it was so, so uh, preposterous to think that they're going to have a kid at 90 years old. Well, guess what they did? And it was the son that God had promised them that they were supposed to wait for. And that son was Isaac. Who is Ishmael today? Well, Ishmael is the beginning of the nation of Islam. The Islam traces their roots back to Ishmael as they believe Ishmael was the promised son of Abraham. And we as Christians believe that Isaac was the promised son of Abraham. See what a difference it makes to wait on the Lord? There's another example, the opposite. It's a very similar example in the Gospels of how, the God, of how John the Baptist was born. Same, uh, similar situation. Uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, uh, they, they had not had any children, and she was well past childbearing years. And guess what? The angel came down and said, you're going to have a child, and you're going to name him John. And, he, and the angel told her just how great he's going to be for the kingdom of heaven. You know the difference that I saw in those two examples? Is that they were never promised a child, and yet they continued to wait. Abraham and Sarah, they were promised a child, and they got impatient. Who are the meek? It is those who submit themselves to the will of God. And we say we're going to do things God's way and not our own. What does it mean to be gentle? What does it mean to be meek? It means that even though we have every ability to do things our own way, we're choosing to forego that, that, that power that we have that God has given us. And we're saying I'm going to submit myself to doing things God's way. It's power under control. God has given us every ability to go out and leave this building and be, in, be as sinful as we want to be. To talk to our children or our spouses or other people however we want. To drive however we want. To talk to other drivers however we want. Uh, God has given us that power in us to sin against him. But what does it mean to be meek? It means that we are going to submit ourselves to the will of the Father. Who did that perfectly? Is Jesus. Jesus, even though he was fully God and fully man, he was meek in that he submitted his self, himself to the will of the Father in all things. 
like Satan was telling him in the temptation, when, when Satan was tempting Jesus, he said, you can command all these stones and everything, you command all these things, command angels to come and rescue you. And Jesus said, no, that's not how it's done. Jesus was being meek, even when Satan was affirming his, the powers that he had. Jesus didn't give in to the temptation. That's what it means to be meek. Why do, we, why do the meek inherit all things? Because they trust God and they trust his ways. The only way that the nation of Israel were able to stay in the land was if they obeyed God's commands. If, if they had to be meek. They had to be obedient to the law of God to remain in the land. And guess what? They didn't. And they got kicked out of the land. And a lot of them died. And a lot of them were punished because they were not meek. They were seeing what everyone else was doing. They got caught up in what other things and what the sinful, wicked nations were doing, and they started doing those things. A venture that we struggle with the same thing as Christians, that we see people being more successful than maybe we are because they're doing things differently. Maybe they're cutting corners. Maybe, maybe it looks like we're being too patient. Maybe we're being too nice. Maybe we're being too forgiving. Or maybe we're being too gracious, you know. And maybe we have to draw that hard line of, well, there's, there's God gracious and there's human gracious and I can only be so good, God. I, God, I can only be so nice to people before, uh, before it doesn't make sense anymore. And we justify in our own minds of doing things our own way. When we mourn over our sins, I think it leads us to meekness. If we truly mourn over our sins, it should naturally lead us to want to do things God's way instead of our own. If you've been in relationships that went wrong and you realize it was because of you doing things your own way, it, then the mourning, mourning over those sins, mourning over those mistakes should lead us to saying, God, I want to do relationships your way. This could look like in a number of different ways. It could be what dating the wrong person. We realize we dated the wrong person. It could mean that we, uh, we went too far sexually with someone else, and there are consequences to that. It could be that we, we are hurting uh, others by our actions or our words, and we've, we've experienced the, the discord that happens in relationships when we don't treat others well. And we, when we mourn over those things, the ways that we, we may, may have mistreated our spouse or mistreated our children or mistreated our friends or our neighbors, when we mourn over those mistakes, they should lead us to meekness. should lead us with this desire to, to say that, God, obviously my way is not working. I want to do things your way. Mourning should lead us to meekness. If you've ever struggled with reckless living, addictions, or carelessness, You've made decisions in your past that you know were just made out of carelessness or recklessness. We can mourn over those things, knowing that you're going to be comforted by God's forgiveness. But as you mourn, you are led to wanting to do things God's way. Uh, we could do this through all Ten Commandments. Just look at the law. If being meek means being obedient to the law of God, we could do this with every of the Ten Commandments. I'll just do this quickly. Uh, commandment number one, which is what? Have no other... Gods. Well, what, what does it mean to be meek in the first commandment? To trust God is to know that he is the only source of divine power. All right? That's a way of being meek in the first commandment. In the first commandment is that you're trusting that God is the only source of divine power. You're not seeking out any other spirit, spiritism or, or mediators out there that offer services of palm reading or anything like that. You're trusting God alone as the source of divine authority in your life. Uh, second commandment. You shall have no... 
idols. Is, to trust God in the second commandment is to know that he is more valuable than any of his creations. Third commandment, you know, do not take the Lord's name in vain. That to trust God is to know that his ways are better than yours. That when we take the Lord's name in vain, we're essentially saying uh, we're calling God's name to make things happen in our lives. That's essentially what people did. Is they, would, they would use God's name as a way of uh, uh, saying, I promise in the name of the Lord that this is going to happen. Right? Well, that's doing things our way. God is sovereign. Uh, number four, honor your parents. Well, uh, uh, that's to, to trust that. Or I'm sorry, number four is the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. That is to trust God to know that he will provide what we need. When we rest from our work, we're trusting that God is going to provide us more work when we take time to rest and worship him and remember him. Uh, Commandment five, to honor your father and mother. We're trusting God that our parents are not the final authority in our lives. There's a difference between obeying our parents and honoring our parents. We are called to honor our father and mother, not obey our father and mother. Why is this significant? Well, not every father and mother is a believer. If a child becomes a Christian, do they need to obey their father and mother in every single thing they do? No, because they might be asking their child to do things that are against the word of God. Who should that child obey more, God or man? God. This is why it's so important to understand the the distinction between it's not obey your father and mother, it's you honor your father and mother. Even as married people, we're not under the authority of our parents' household anymore, but we are still to honor our father and mother. That commandment doesn't have an end to it. Real quickly, the rest of the commandments, number six, do not murder. Well, that is to trust God in knowing that vengeance belongs to him alone. When we have our anger and we want to sometimes kill someone, or sometimes people do kill people, is to remember that God is the judge. It's his vengeance, not ours. Uh, we'll skip the rest of the commandments, but I just wanted you to see that point. If meekness is obeying the word of God, then you can take all the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and ask yourself, what does it mean to trust God in this commandment? To not steal, to not lie, to not commit adultery, to have faith, and to trust God that faithfulness honors and pleases God. Right? All those things have to do with trust because there are going to be temptations to steal. There will be temptations to lie. There will be temptations to commit adultery. There will be temptations to do things your own way, my own way, that in our minds seem better than God's way. That's what it means to be meek, is to say, I can do things my way, but I'm choosing to do things God's way. Last one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This has uh, everything to do with desiring God and God alone. So now that someone has admitted their need for God and they've mourned over their sinfulness because they needed God and now they, that mourning has led them to meekness, the trusting God, now the, ne- the, the natural response to that, uh, once again, all these things take place at the same time in a believer's heart, but what, what naturally takes place after that is the desire to know God. If you're going to desire to do things God's way, then there's going to be a natural desire to seek the highest good, which is whatever God says. We are to seek the righteousness of God and nothing else. When Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, for all these things will be given to you as well, we are to seek the righteousness of God. Well, what were people seeking at that time? Their own righteousness. Saying, well, I'm a good person as long as I think I'm a good person. 
or I'm a good person as long as I'm better than this person over here. That's not seeking the righteousness of God. That's seeking self-righteousness. And if we seek self-righteousness, then it means that we are saying it is by our own standard that we're going to please God. See, for someone to hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are desiring the righteousness of God, that they're not going to settle for anything less, that they have an understanding that nothing on earth compares to the righteousness of God. Not even our own lives, when we think that we're at our best, we don't, match, we don't measure up to God's righteousness. So we see this time and time again. Uh, Romans 5:17. this will be uh, one of the last passages we'll read and we'll close up in prayer. It says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. It's talking about Jesus Christ. For as though through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, Though many were made sinners, that's us, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we get to heaven... It is because of the righteousness of Christ that is placed on us. That is what gets us into heaven. There is no chance for even us to brag about any of our righteousness because it will be completely covered by the righteousness of Christ. We will have nothing to brag about to God when we get to heaven. Once again, we will only be able to boast in the Lord. That God won't even give us a chance to tell him, look how good I was in this time of my life, or, or look at all the nice things I did for these people. All that will be a wash. Why? Because the blood of Christ is covering our whole life. It's the righteousness of Christ that is placed on us. And when we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, we will be satisfied. We'll be glorified. We'll be full of Christ. We will be made in the image of Christ when we are in heaven. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, I think the most basic way to do this is to measure your uh, your, your desire for righteousness is, desi- is your desire to study the word. Every Christian needs to grow in this area, as in all of these areas, right? We could always do better in studying the word of God. But our desire to study the word of God does have something to do with our desire for righteousness. Because how will you know what righteousness is unless you're studying the word of God? Psalm 119, and by the way, all of Psalm 119 is about one thing. The Word of God. All right, this is Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Book of Psalms, and, and so uh, it, it is a good reason for that because God's Word is extremely important in the life of a Christian. So he spends all of Psalm 119 talking about one thing, and it's the beauty of the Word of God. Listen to just a short passage of this: How blessed are those who whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. 
I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. See all the different words that were used in there for the law of God? Here's a few tips when you study your Bible. Evaluate your time when you read your Bible. Evaluate it. Are you just reading and not getting anything out of it? If so, why do you think that is? Does it feel like a legalistic practice for you that I just have to read through this verse and this passage? Okay, I did my Bible reading for today, and it had no impact on you. Uh, But evaluate your Bible reading. If it's not being effective in your life, well, you might want to ask yourself why that is. Talk to someone about it. Another tip is find someone to talk about the Bible with. Don't study the Bible by yourself. That is a very dangerous thing. Studying the Bible by yourself is one of the most dangerous things you can do because you will come up with your own understanding and yours alone. And that is how other religions were started. Find someone to read the Bible with. Bible study. Read it with your spouse. Read it with your friends. Uh, Take notes. And last uh, is just be challenged in your presuppositions. Allow yourself to be challenged in what you think you know about the Bible. Can you really defend your position using Scripture? Or is the Scripture coming up against what you thought Scripture said? So allow allow yourself to be challenged in some of your presuppositions. But as we look at these Beatitudes, and we're finishing next week, I want you guys to understand, if you're a Christian, you have a basic understanding of all these Beatitudes. Why? Because a change has taken place in your heart. If you're in here and you don't know Christ, the invitation is right here. The invitation is in Christ. That, that do you want to experience the eternal blessing of God? It's available for you. Forgiveness is available for you. You have to admit your need for God's help. You have to admit that, that you, you have a sinfulness that needs forgiveness and to, so you can receive comfort in that. Uh, your promised comfort, your promised forgiveness when you confess your sins to God. Do you want to entrust yourself to ways of God? Do you want to trust him with your life? And do you have it? And, and all those things will result in a desire to want to know him more. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you. We praise you for the promises that you give us. Eight different descriptions of what it means to be eternally blessed by you. No greater blessing to be blessed by God. But we also uh, know that there is no greater fear than to be cursed by you. As Christians, we rejoice in the fact that we can receive comfort and that when our faith is in Christ alone for our righteousness, we have no fear of being cursed by you. You have displayed your love for us through the cross, that Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his perfect life was enough for the forgiveness of all of our sins. The fact that he was resurrected gives us, uh, gives us the hope that we know that we too will be resurrected with him. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who wants this promise. Pray that you just make it abundantly clear to them now that that promise is available to them by receiving you by faith, receiving Jesus Christ by faith for their salvation, for the forgiveness of all their sins. So there's no more fear in this life. So we thank you once again for your grace and your forgiveness and your patience in allowing us to grow in all of these beatitudes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.